You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. Hi, I'm Kelly Hall. I'm an associate professor at the Colorado State University, and I'm a critical care uh, specialist in dog and cat medicine. Yeah, so <clears throat> this is actually an older story from when I was a faculty member at the University of Minnesota. Um, I was on my way in to lecture on one of my favorite topics, actually another T, toxicology, and I was called to the emergency room. Um, and when I arrived in the emergency room, um, a canine police officer was there that had been stabbed multiple times in the line of duty. Um, so when he was uh, in the line of duty, he was stabbed by a perpetrator that the police officers were working to apprehend. And so they had to work to create a safe space so they could get to Major. He had been sent in to... Um, take care of the, uh, the perpetrator. Um, and they heard him vocalizing. So after the space was created to be safe, they picked him up, put him in the back of their car and drove him immediately to the hospital under lights. So he arrived very quickly. So in the emergency room, a trained team was there to receive him and worked to stabilize him. I was called in to back them up as the faculty member. Um, they did their primary and secondary surveys. He received blood product. Um, he was stabilized cardiovascularly, but one of the lacerations had actually injured his lungs. So he had a pneumothorax, which they addressed and stabilized in the emergency room, but <clears throat> he was taken then to a trauma CT and then to surgery immediately following to fix his lung injury as well. He went back then to our ICU where he can, had ongoing care for his injuries. Um, and it was determined that he also had spinal injury that was assessed on his initial exam, but there was um, nothing obvious on the CT. So he was taken back for additional imaging. He went through an MRI um, and they took him then for surgery to help with spinal cord injury. And while the spinal cord itself wasn't lacerated, it was severely bruised. He actually received stem cell therapy. There was one of the surgeons was doing research on stem cells for healing spinal cord injury at the time. And then he was back to our ICU and spent a long time in our ICU, then went through rehabilitation and was ultimately fitted with a wheelchair. <clears throat> Obviously, he was retired from the force and his role as a canine police officer, but he would come back on the weekends when his partner was out continuing um, doing policing work and hang out with us at the hospital. So he became a fixture at the hospital on weekends for many, many years. I tell this story because I think it really demonstrates the depth of resources that are available in veterinary medicine. One of the things that we commonly hear is amazement at the things we can do, blood product, stem cells, CT, MRI, intensive care unit, rehabilitation. We have those tools and we are able to apply them to severely injured patients. I also think it highlights the importance of our tie with folks who are involved in operational canine work, whether it be military, police officer, search and rescue, et cetera. In fact, uh, Major and his partner went on to the Minnesota State Legislature and changed the laws around penalties associated for injuring a canine police officer in the line of duty, which I think is really cool. And I think the final piece is it shows that continuum of care. So for those, in this case, dogs, which we're interested in, but we're also interested in that translational piece, for those that are most severely injured by trauma, in a tra trauma situation from the pre-hospital piece, so arriving, helping, supporting immediately. In this case, it was the police officers were the first responders. 
all the way through that rehabilitation piece. So working with folks, swim tank, building up musculature, and in this case, being fitted for a wheelchair. So I think it really shows that entire continuum of care, which we recognize that level of resources is not going to be at every hospital, but then how do we work with hospitals that have various levels of resources to maximize when those patients that are most severely injured may need additional resources? So how do we leverage that network of veterinarians and veterinary tools? Um, so Major is my, my story case. I think he's a really interesting patient um, and was a big influence on both my career and many of us who are involved in trauma. You've heard us discuss several times on our show that dogs are great models of human aging. One of the conditions we haven't discussed yet is that of physical trauma, serious injuries to the body, and how our companion animals are teaching us about humans' capacity for healing. That's where Kelly Hall comes in. Dr. Hall is an associate professor of emergency and critical care in CSU's College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. On today's show, we talk about similarities that can be leveraged between dogs and humans regarding physical trauma. Trauma is most common in young, healthy dogs and people. But as humans age, the types of injuries we sustain and the comorbidities we bring to the table end up influencing how well we heal and even how likely we are to survive an injury. Dr. Hall also tells us about the Veterinary Committee on Trauma, also known as VETCOT, that is developing a database of animal trauma cases and a network of hospitals and trauma systems so that veterinarians can improve patient care, education, and research on critical cases. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. Well, Kelly, first things first, I thank you so much for coming on our podcast and talking to us a little bit about what your work is and what you're passionate about. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for the conversation. I wonder if we could go back and have you tell us a little bit about how did you get interested in a field like this in emergency critical care in the veterinary space? Yeah, for sure. So certainly influenced like many of us by folks who came before me, um, certainly have that amazing opportunity to stand on the shoulders of others. So, and I think with my hindsight 2020 goggles, just who was in that space as I was growing and developing in my veterinary career. So there were a number of folks that my department chair at the time was Robert Washabell and translational research and translational medicine was really kind of hitting veterinary medicine as far as opportunities to be better collaborating with the medical field. Um, you know, our veterinary oncologists have done a really great job. They really paved the way for us to engage in that space. And Dr. Washabell, who is my department chair, was a huge advocate of that. I also, during that time, had a really incredible opportunity to do a master's in clinical research with a human trauma surgeon, Greg Bielman, who truly influenced my path at the time, I was really interested in sepsis. I thought sepsis was really cool. That's a very critical care type of thing. But then started to recognize that, you know, trauma is really an all-comers and it's common. 
We see it at all veterinary clinics, whether we're at a general practice, a shelter, or a well-resourced tertiary hospital, animals sustain traumatic injury. And so that opportunity to have impact on a larger scale um, was exciting. Um, so really being influenced and learning how to do study design and clinical research in that space. Um, and then ultimately then leveraging that opportunity to be in the translational space, that not only could the work that we do and working together with a team elevate our patients and how we're able to take care of our patients, but then to have that opportunity to potentially impact human patient care as well and outcomes in human patients. Um, so that's really how I got started. Um, influencers who really impacted my pathway. And so what did you take from those experiences that influence your research today? Can you tell us a bit about what you work on in the research field? Yeah, for sure. So early on, um, there was actually an elevator ride with myself and uh, Dr. Claire Sharp, who's now in Australia. She was at Tufts in Massachusetts at the time. And we were lamenting at this conference, you know, we have all these studies in veterinary medicine that are single center and have, you know, 10 to 100 patients and really, we need to expand that number of cases that we have so we can really be drawing conclusions, designing well-designed clinical trials, prospective clinical trials, really taking the research, how we do research, to that next level. So we started chatting with other colleagues who were actually early in their career at the time as well and said, let's pitch this. Let's pitch this to our human colleagues because funding is a piece of it, right? So how do we fund the research that we want to do? And so we pitched this through some granting opportunities through the NIH. Again, clinical and translational research was really coming, um, I don't want to say coming of age, but becoming more common at that time. And the feedback we got on our, our grants overall was very positive. But you know, to kind of paraphrase it, it was, that sounds really cool. Can you as veterinarians work together? Can you collaborate in a way that you can get this number of cases? I think that to me had two pieces to it. One, they were right. Our literature tended to be single center in smaller numbers. But then the second piece is that perception, which I do think has changed over the years from the medical field that, you know, isn't that cute? Veterinarians play with puppies and kittens all the time. And really going back to the story about major, that we are very well resourced and we have extensive specialists across the board in many areas. And we have that spectrum from general practitioner to specialist and can um, deliver care in many different resourced environments. So I think that feedback really kind of hit home on both of those things, like almost a challenge, like we got to prove <laughs> what it is that we do. We do really incredible things and, and they're right. Like, can we do it in a multi-center way? And that's really where the vet cot started then. So this idea that has multiple spinoffs on vet cot, but one of them was, all right, so what is our laboratory space? What does that look like? Well, if we want to say that we can leverage our model and have it inform human care, we need to get those hospitals that are the most well-resourced, that have CT, MRI, surgeons that are able to come in for the most severely injured patients, have a blood bank, have anesthesiology, have critical care. Let's pull those hospitals together, and that's our working laboratory. These hospitals are our working clinical laboratory. Um, so we started a, a document that is adapted actually from the human space that says, all right, well, here are the tools you need. If you want to be a veterinary trauma center, you need to have a surgeon that can respond within 60 minutes to the patient bedside, et cetera. Um, and so we started to identify and ultimately verify hospitals as veterinary trauma centers and built this network. 
that it has over 20 hospitals in it now and continues to grow. And one of the criteria to be part of this network is that the hospitals track data on all trauma cases that come in the door and enter that into a centralized registry. So that's become our veterinary trauma registry, which now has over 55,000 dog and cat cases in it. It's got um, nine publications that are searchable by NCBI and PubMed. Um, there are 16 papers that have been accepted for publications, abstracts that have been presented literally all around the world, and it continues to generate information in a large scale way. So we've gone from the single center, you know, 10 to 100 cases to a multi-center effort where we have thousands of cases that we can analyze, even in subgroup analysis. And then that allows us to look at some of those spaces. So what are those good models that we can look at in dogs to help inform human care? And those that we have come up with are a few. So one is around the resuscitation of the acutely bleeding patient or the hemorrhaging patient. Um, and that has both battlefield and civilian trauma patient applications. So we have a project going on now, actually, where we're looking at freeze-dried blood product, essentially, to resuscitate severely bleeding trauma patients. That has application to the military and the battlefield, something that can be in a backpack that can potentially help stop bleeding and save a life. Um, so austere environment as well. Um, you know, patients that may be seen, our pre-hospital system is our general practices. So when a dog or cat is injured and taken to their veterinarian down the street, what tools can we make sure that that practitioner has to help with stabilization in those severe cases? And then if they need added resources, helping facilitate that transport and transfer. So bleeding is one. Traumatic brain injury would be the next. So it's a common uh, co-injury in trauma. Um, and I think we can, there's quite a bit we can do in that space. It's, it's common. It, Long-term outcomes are impacted by brain injury. So those would be the two big ones that I think we see commonly and are very similar to the human condition that we are working to translate and have a project actually now that is looking at a product that could ultimately translate to people as well. Did that answer the question? I think that got yeah. off a little bit there. <laughs> no, no, you definitely did. And and you took me right where I was just going to go, which is, can you explain a little bit more why dogs are good models for studying trauma and, and what can we take from canine studies that applies to humans? Yeah, I think a number of things. One, just the the size. I think it's always interesting to me that in the research space, small animal models are considered to be rats and mice, and then large animal models are sheep and pig and dog. In the veterinary clinical space, <laughs> dogs and cats are considered small animals, and then large animal medicine is around you know, horses and uh, cows and so on. So from the research standpoint for human medicine, dogs are considered a large animal model. So they're closer in shape and size to humans. When we look at the epidemiology of, so what is the cause of injury, blunt versus penetrating injury, we see very similar patterns, not only in the way that animals are injured, so vehicular injuries being a common blunt injury, falling from height is a very common injury in people, and we also see that quite a bit in dogs and cats. Um, penetrating injuries, so from bite wounds to unknown objects, I mean, that could be gunshot wound, knife, or just falling onto or being injured by something that's penetrating. Um, so the type of injuries that we see are very common. 
I think the other piece then is, you know, that opportunity to look at long-term outcomes, you know, on average, a dog is going to live, you know, 10 to 15 years. Um, so that timeline to look for those long-term injuries is shorter. So we can get more information on long-term consequences to trauma, um, than say in people, um, I think because we have, as I highlighted before, similar tools that we can apply. Now, I'm, you know, we certainly don't have every tool that is available in human medicine, but we have quite a few that in the trauma space specifically are very similar. So we have similar resources that we can apply to the patients. And then that spectrum of injury, right? We can see an animal that has fallen and, you know, all they have is a broken bone. Fantastic. That's great. We can fix that. Their survival is, you know, very high, very good. But we also have that spectrum to where we get to those more severely injured patients that are coming in bleeding excessively, have head injury, et cetera. So those most severely injured patients, that is really where we can make those differences, where we need to learn more about how do we help those patients survive. So those would be the pieces, degree of severity of injury, the epidemiology of what types of injuries we see in both, um, longevity, so looking at long-term outcome. I guess I'll throw in one other piece, which is, you know, in, in much preclinical research, those models that are developed for research purposes, um, for at least in the trauma space, those animals need to be under general anesthesia because trauma is being induced. Um, but in our patients that are hit by a car or fall from a height, you know, that injury happens while they are not under anesthesia, which is true in the human space. And we are delivering that care as soon as they arrive. Yes, that includes pain medications and so on, but that pathway is more like the human condition than a, a created model that may be under, that would be under anesthesia. Yeah, I think about, you know, going back to the VetCot, you know, database and, and everything that healthcare for humans is similar in a lot of ways to veterinary care in terms of, you know, there's insurance and there's departments with doctors from different specialties. So I just imagine, you know, when a dog arrives in a veterinary emergency room, there's a process that unfolds very similarly to when a human goes to the hospital. Yeah. And that is, you hit the nail on the head. That's a really great point. So there are a lot of similarities, but we also have to highlight some of the differences. So I can say for me personally as a clinician, one of the challenges in veterinary medicine is there's all sorts of things we can do. We Insurance is becoming more common in the veterinary medical space, but the reality is a lot of these tools that we have also have costs because for maintenance, for utilization, et cetera, which I is very appropriate because they're high cost tools potentially. The flip side to that and why I think I'm so excited about the translational space is that we can create then clinical research projects that within that project can offset the cost to the client so that they are not stuck with that decision of, okay, the veterinarian just told me here are the things that we can do. I now have to look and think about what I am able to do. And I put that in the list of resources, right? We have blood product, we have CT, we have MRI, we have the dollar resources that are out of pocket expenses. And that's the reality of veterinary medicine. So how can we then in the veterinary space help to create those situations to help support that reality of vet med. And again, I'll go back to our oncology group. I think they've done that so well. They've become so robust with clinical trials that have opportunity that we're truly doing things that are helpful, we're looking to do, but we're also asking questions. And there's that offset um, to help offset that cost associated with 
you know, significant disease processes, if you will. So um, I love your point. And that is a difference, but an opportunity. I see it as an opportunity for us to continue to do better by our patients. Yes, absolutely. So for the listener who's been listening all along so far, who's wondering, you know, what does this have to do with the Center for Healthy Aging? I wonder if you could talk about the aging component of of the work that you do and how trauma in dogs can help us learn more about when trauma happens to an aging human. Yeah, that's great. So I actually um, dug into, so I talked about our veterinary database. So the human world also has a trauma database and similar pathway started locally with regions of hospitals, but now has grown into the national trauma data bank, which is a very robust system. Um, so they track injury types, age, hospital size, all sorts of data. So I went, I was re-looking at their data set. And so as, um, as humans, so trauma is most common in young, otherwise healthy dogs and cats and people, um, which is good and bad. Um, good in that, you know, bodies are in, um, tend to be relatively healthy and the opportunity to then heal from traumatic injury is very good. Um, but uh, as humans age, as we get up into the higher age groups, the distribution of both type of injury, survivability, and comorbidities, so things that the patient comes with prior to their injury, those do change as both dogs and people age. Um, so one of the things that I mentioned in the veterinary trauma database is that we see a lot of fall injury, and falls are actually one of the most common types of blunt injury as people get over 60, 65 years of age and so on. So to me, that's a really great opportunity to translate from dogs to people. Also the around comorbidities. So, you know, our veterinary patients get many similar chronic diseases, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, cardiac disease, underlying heart or cardiovascular disease, cancer, musculoskeletal diseases, which I know is a big translational space here. So osteoarthritis, joint pain, joint disease. So how do we get these patients up and moving after their injury, knowing that that helps with healing? So I think even within, while trauma has a huge spectrum, within that population of older patients within both veterinary medicine and human medicine, there are lots of similarities that we can leverage in those subgroups. So beyond looking at the database and huge larger numbers, you know, drilling down into that population of animals and how we can translate that knowledge and information then to human medicine as well. And it's about, again, that healing, those comorbidities and so on. How do we do best? The final thing I'll say, which is uh, to that question, kind of back to that, I've talked about similarities, but what are some differences? So, you know, the reality in veterinary medicine is that the decision to you know, humanely euthanize an animal, that is part of the conversation in veterinary medicine. Um, what I feel like I'm seeing in the database is that we may have this unintended bias for older animals. We have a study that looked at the database and animals, um, uh, older animals and their outcomes. We have a higher rate of euthanasia in that group of animals. And I don't have the answer to the why, but for me, one of them might be, well, they're older. I don't know how much more time it's going to take a lot of time for them to recover. And if there are pieces of that, I think we could do better by learning more about that. Um, you know, there are other diseases that we see in older dogs. I'll use GDV or gastric dilatation volvulus as an example, that they can recover remarkably from that. You know, they have the surgery, 
two or three days later, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 year old dogs I've seen over and over again, go home and look like they did the day before they came to the hospital. So I wonder if we may have some bias that we are maybe prematurely, yes, the injuries are severe, but making assumptions about their ability to recover. And I think we have opportunity there to do better and, and reduce some of that bias. But we need to ask the questions, right? We need to look and do the research. Um, and again, back to, you know, if we have this translational component, if finances are a piece of it, you know, can we help offset some of those costs and then give these animals a chance, um, certainly alleviate any suffering or pain that they're having, of course, and, and um, but see if we can give them some of that time that they need to be healing, um, which is the kind of cool thing about trauma, like the traumatic injury, what has caused tissue injury, that's over, that's done. And now our job as a veterinarian is to help the body heal. Um, unlike, say, cancer or cardiovascular disease, some of these other long-term diseases that don't go away, we're managing. The trauma's gone. Now we just have to help the body heal and get as close back to where it was pre-injury as possible, which I think is really cool. So do we have opportunity maybe to do better by some of these older animals um, that where maybe euthanasia is elected due to age um, and justify that, you know, we need to think more about that. Do you have any like specific studies that come to mind where, you know, maybe it's in the VetCot database or just one that you know of, of like, you know, an older dog that had a certain kind of condition and, and the way the course of treatment went, the therapies that were used and maybe how we could extrapolate it to a human, like a very clear case of what it looked like. Yeah, that's actually, I don't, um, we, there, <laughs> I don't, um, but we, the study that we have is, was really looking more at the population level. So in patients that are considered, and I'll use the word geriatric, cause that's what was used in the study, but in geriatric dogs was that, that, um, they may have similar degree of injury, but the, um, frequency with which they were euthanized when we, um, controlled for degree of injury was much higher than younger animals. Um, so, but I don't have a good uh, research paper on specifically how interventions around trauma have improved outcomes. But to me, that's opportunity, right? I think, you know, we have this network of hospitals. We have these hospitals that have committed to being interested in trauma. So the infrastructure is there. It's time for us to be asking the questions. So I think the opportunity is there and I think it would be a great project. Yeah. How much of this, like for instance, the bias that you talked about when it came to euthanasia with dogs, how much of this is just, you know, we haven't thought to ask the research question yet. I, I think you just nailed it. And I think that's yeah. really what our first 10 years of effort have been about is let's get this infrastructure in place. Let's build the laboratory. I'm using that very in, in quotes. <laughs> the laboratory is these well-resourced hospitals collaborating together um, let's build the database so that we can design studies. Um, so, you know, we can look in the database and say hospital one sees, you know, 200 patients that are over the age of 10 a year that have traumatic injury. Let's, you know, we can start this study. Um, so I think that's the cool part is we have the infrastructure has been built. Now it's time to start asking questions. You know, I mentioned our hemorrhage study is really one of the first that is leveraging that. And we're looking forward to doing more. Um, the opportunities are wide open. Tell me again, how many hospitals and centers are a part of VetCot? 
Yep. So we currently have 25, much like in the human space. Um, hospitals, because we require that they have a certain level and depth of resources, if something changes, then they are no longer a veterinary trauma center. Um, so over the years, we've had 32 altogether that have joined. Some have had to fall off because of changes in resources. And we're actually sending out a call here um, in the next few months to identify our next wave. So given the resources required to um, go through the process, um, we've done it on an approximately annual basis. Um, and each year that we've gone through it, we've got, you know, had four to 10 hospitals join. Um, so we are looking forward to moving through and um, adding hospitals, expanding over these next couple of years. As with many things, COVID threw a little bit of a wrench <laughs> in the works of so the processes and kind of systems and pace that we had going was paused. Um, but we are back expanding that network. So currently 25 um, and growing. Is there something that these hospitals, trauma centers, do they have to agree to do a certain something to continue to be a part of VetCot? Yeah, great question. So in addition to having to meet the resources or the guidelines, that is very explicit. So, you know, and it's broken down by what they need in surgery, what they need for a blood bank, what they need in critical care, their emergency room, how they're staffed, et cetera. In addition to that, the two main pieces are contributing cases to the registry consistently, um, which I've already mentioned. But the second piece is to have a robust performance improvement and patient safety program and showing that. So showing that you're committed to advancing trauma, showing that you're continually looking at what you do and working as a hospital to get better at that. And that manifests in different ways. And that's borrowed directly from human hospitals as well. So it's that continual, it's that growth mindset, right? How do we continue to get better and better at what we're doing? And that's both from day to day on the floor, but also then education efforts. How are we sharing what we've learned about trauma? Um, getting that out to not only within our hospital, but our region. And then the research piece as well. Are we contributing to, you know, whether we have designed a study and are leading that study or are contributing to the database, which is a requirement, um, or contributing to a multi-center study? How are we contributing to the efforts to improve? So yes, hospitals need to achieve, in addition to having the tools and devices and people, resources, committing to that ongoing efforts around research, education, and doing better by our patients. Yeah, it reminds me of, you know, at the Center for Healthy Aging, we're working, you know, trying to find the funding to start a human-paired dog biobank um, with the idea, you know, listeners have heard, heard me talk about this before of, you know, a human brings in their dog and they both get a blood sample and, and, you know, they come back next year and they do the same thing. And next thing you know, we have this longitudinal biobank of data. And, and for us being a center for healthy aging, we're looking for biomarkers of aging that are shared between the dog and their human. Um, but VetCot reminds me of a similar idea of, you know, you don't have, you know, prior to VetCot, you didn't have this database of these different cases of trauma that these hospitals were seeing. And it's almost like we don't know until we have that database. It, it's like we can't even fathom what some of these cases looked like because we didn't have the resources all compiled together to be able to investigate. And it sounds like that's same idea with VetCot is just pulling together a collection of really important information. Yeah. And that's what I love about this time in research as well around big data, right? We have now the tools to look at and the, um, 
you know, people who have that skill set and, you know, computer technology that allows us to look at very large sets of data. I think that's so cool that we can dive in and find answers at that level. Um, and I love the idea of a data uh, a blood bank. And, you know, I think we have opportunity in the trauma space for that as well. Um, you know, pre post injury, you know, looking at some things that may be biomarkers pre and post injury. Um, both in our canine patients and our human patients. We actually have a proposal for a project that is doing just that, that we'll be looking at um, uh, trauma patients with bone fractures um, and comparing dogs to people and the metabolomics of that. So I just think it's the opportunity. That's one of the things that excites me the most is just like you're saying, pool data together and then how do we leverage and, and one another and, um, you know, answer questions together in a big way. I think it's really cool. Yeah, it's exciting, an exciting time to be a part of research. And and I think talking specifically about trauma is, you know, for the listener, again, going back to the aging piece, we're building that you're building the infrastructure now, you're building the database now so that, you know, 10 years from now, we can understand those markers for bone fracture. And that's a going back to what you're saying, you know, humans experience falls just like dogs experience falls. And we can learn about how the body heals and responds to those things. Yes. And so it's just a completely unmined area of data yeah. that I'm excited about. Totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. Well, you've kind of already answered my my last question, I imagine, but I wonder, you know, if you have any more you can add to it, which is the question I'm asking everyone who comes on the show this season, which is what makes you most excited for the future of aging research from your perspective in emergency critical care in the veterinary space? Yeah, I, you know, the, at the core of everything around the Veterinary Trauma Initiative is improving trauma patient outcomes. That is our goal. And I actually have a slide, any pre presentation I give that has people with their animals. And our goal is to get those animals back to their day-to-day -day lives, whether that's a working dog, military, police, or a companion animal and with their family. Because I think the evidence to support the impact that animals have on our lives is so strong. So that whole human animal bond and trauma is common and it happens in people, it happens in animals. So our job in the trauma space is to work as hard as we can to get those patients that sustain injury back to their families and allow, you know, make sure that human animal bond has more time, that they have more time together. And we are really committed to getting those tools and having that research. This isn't just us at CSU and it's not just critical care. Our efforts are around getting the tools in the hands of our general practitioners, first responders, et cetera. It's a huge ask, um, but it's really fun to see it moving along. And from the aging standpoint, the sooner we can get our animals back into our lives so that we can continue to grow, grow with them, whether through aging or otherwise, um, I think that's a win for both people and pets. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for this last hour of your time. I really enjoyed getting to learn more about what it is that you do. And I totally never really thought about trauma in, in animals <laughs> very much until this conversation. So uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. It's something I'm excited about and I really appreciate the space. So thanks a lot, Hannah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging 
and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.